Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> I've been told we need to finish right at 10.15. Uh, got a big thumbs up for that. So uh, I, we, 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 we have a, a lot of stuff to cover with Nicodemus. We probably won't uh, finish. In fact, I, I'm certain we won't finish, but I'd like to, to get as far as we can today. Um, could I get someone to uh, volunteer to open in prayer this morning? Amen. Okay, the section of, that we're looking at with Nicodemus really starts uh, at the end of John chapter 2. There's uh, uh, three verses here, which I'll go ahead and read. Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And as we kind of continue on in, in chapter 3, we, we see that Nicodemus is going to be kind of the representative of this, this crowd's faith. But a really good question to, to be asking is, what's wrong with this crowd's faith? The, the first part of the verse, you know, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, sounds really good at the surface. But John is very clear that it's a deficient faith that uh, this crowd has. I, I think a really good summary is that this crowd is seeing miracles, but they're not seeing signs. In John... Um, you know, a sign always points to something beyond itself. Uh, put another way, they're, they're seeing signs in the same way that you know, a family that drives to the sign marking the entrance of the Grand Canyon National Park, and they look at that sign, and then they turn around and drive home. They didn't see what the sign is pointing to, which is the Grand Canyon. Um, and the crowd has done the same thing. They've seen miracles, but they did not see them as signs pointing to a reality beyond themselves. And Nicodemus has done the same thing. So uh, I, I thought it might be just a little bit helpful to, to go back a little bit. So this is right after Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Uh, and so that was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so in that sign, the disciples saw beyond turning water into wine, and they saw Jesus' glory revealed in that. And I think that's the difference between authentic faith and this faith that you know, recognizes miracles and is interested in miracles, but doesn't see the, the reality that they point to. So the, um, the, you know, the, the difference there is, is subtle. It might not jump out right away, but it's the difference between life and death. It doesn't take a regenerated heart to be impressed by a miracle. Um, it doesn't take a regenerated heart to recognize a good teacher. It doesn't take a regenerated heart to believe that someone is sent from God to deliver you from the Romans or maybe to uh, alleviate your poverty or to give you your best life now. But um, it does take a regenerated heart to look at Jesus and to see his glory. It takes a regenerated heart to uh, see Jesus as being able to deliver you from the condemnation of sin and give you a right standing with God. It takes a regenerated heart to see Jesus as the treasure buried in a field that you know, upon finding him, you joyfully sell everything that you own by the field and rejoice in possessing a treasure of infinite worth. That's the difference between the spurious faith of the crowds and uh, the authentic faith of the disciple. And as, as I said at the beginning, what John is going to do, he, he knows that we're not going to quite see everything just in uh, that, that short verse at the beginning. And so then he's going to introduce a representative of the, the crowd. 
And this isn't just any representative. This is going to be uh, the, the best that they could summon. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read the section that we're looking at in chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of, of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And one of the questions that we looked at last time that I just think is worth revisiting really quickly maybe from a slightly different vantage point, why is it particularly significant that Jesus introduces the new birth in his conversation with Nicodemus? Um, And one way of answering that, or at least one part of the answer, is that if uh, anyone that Jesus encountered should be at least partially on the right track, it would be Nicodemus. If if he just needed a little bit of a course correction, uh, if there was kind of something that could be salvaged from human self-efforts, Nicodemus would be the person that, that would qualify for that. He was an educated and intelligent person uh, you know, to be uh, on the Sanhedrin. Anyone on the Sanhedrin, and especially a Pharisee, would have devoted themselves to religious study for their entire life. Um, he, he probably would have been well-to-do, and he could ha- have kind of used those resources uh, to, you know, you know, build a business, you know, to do something else kind of in the secular realm, or he would have been wealthy enough, he could have just sort of enjoyed a life of luxury and not really done much of anything. And Nicodemus didn't do that. You know, he pursued you know, all of revealed truth, the scriptures, with, with most of uh, his efforts, probably as much human effort as anyone really could, could muster. Um, not only that, he was a religious conservative. He believed the entirety of the Old Testament to be in, uh, inspired, subscribed to a very literal interpretation of scripture. Um, He spent his days diligently studying that scripture. He would have memorized certainly the first five books of the Bible, probably other uh, portions of scripture as well. And finally, you know, he he really structured his life around trying to obey the law um, uh, in in a very strict sense. So, you know, kind of looking at, at that sort of thing, you know, from a human perspective, he's doing everything that he could do to be right with God. And so when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to start over, that he needs to be born again, 
He's saying that the best of human efforts can't even get us going in the right direction. Um, if Nicodemus needed a complete rebirth, you know, abandoning everything that he'd done and simply looking to God and to God alone for salvation, you know, that certainly tells us that any uh, person coming to God is going to need to come the same way. So, <clears throat> we looked really quickly at the, new, at the new birth. There's other pictures of it in, in Scripture. But almost all of them kind of get a, a, a complete new start. So when, when Nicodemus is told that he needs to be born again, you know, this is his response. Uh, you know, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, commentaries are kind of all over the place on how to interpret this. And I, I will admit that most of them see this as being sarcastic. Um, that you know, Nicodemus is almost kind of scoffing at this. Personally, I, I don't think it's necessary to read it that way. And I I don't think that's quite what Nicodemus has in mind. Uh, I, I prefer to see this as Nicodemus kind of staying in the analogy that Jesus is using. Nicodemus is a very intelligent person. He recognizes that when Jesus says that he needs to be born again, that Jesus is using an analogy. And so Nicodemus is kind of continuing on in that analogy. He's saying, well, wait a minute. How can I accomplish this new birth? Um, a lot of people will disagree and kind of say that he, he's, he's being sarcastic, and they, they could be right there. But I, I think he's simply having a hard time accepting the idea that nothing that he can do is going to contribute uh, to his salvation, that it needs to be done entirely uh, by God. And if, if you see it that way, what, how Jesus responds, is, I think, makes a little bit more sense, and that's why I prefer to read it not as, as sarcastic, but simply as trying to understand what Jesus means. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So when, when Jesus says that everything that he's done so far isn't enough, he's saying, okay, what can I do? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, Tim is... Uh, you know, often kind of pointing out that we're incurably religious. You know, we, we want to do something to, to merit our salvation. And Nicodemus, of all people, you know, he's lived his life thinking that he's on the right track, kind of doing the right things to earn something from God. So, you know, that, that, that thinking is not going to disappear right away. Um, anyway, that, that's how I prefer to read it. But you know, a, a lot of uh, commentaries and a lot of sermon series will you know, see this as being a, more of a sarcastic statement. They, they certainly could be correct. It, it, it would read that way. I just think that the flow works better if you, you see Nicodemus as just trying to understand what Jesus has to say. So Jesus kind of responds again, and he says almost the same thing. So if you look at the sentences, they're, they're virtually identical. The real difference is that Jesus replaces uh, this, the statement born again with born of water and the spirit. Um, there's, there's another small change. Uh, he cannot see or he cannot enter. I, I don't think I, I, I see very much meaning in the, the difference there. I think the, the key is that, that you know, Jesus is giving him another way of understanding uh, what, what it means to be born again. So I, I think born of water and born of the spirit 
is somehow equivalent to born again. Yes, Ralph? It does not. I, I don't believe Nicodemus is mentioned in the other Gospels at all. Um, I could be mistaken there, but I don't think so. So, you know, looking at that phrase, water of the Spirit, you'll see lots of different interpretations. Uh, not necessarily of the Spirit. Almost everyone right away sees that being the Holy Spirit. There doesn't seem to be much controversy there. But born of water, there, there are a lot of different ways of reading it. Um, one thing that, that might jump out, and you're not on the wrong track if it jumps out, you're just incorrect, is baptism. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why that I, I think baptism is actually on the right track, even though I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in a little bit. The real problem with uh, with you know, this referring to baptism is that you, uh, when Nicodemus responds to this, Jesus criticizes him for his ignorance of the Old Testament. Baptism is not in the Old Testament. So if Jesus had been talking about baptism here, he wouldn't have a, a reason to criticize Nicodemus for his knowledge of the Old Testament. So we need to be looking to our Old Testament to, to understand this, this phrase. Um, another possibility that you know, some good commentators will point to is you know, water refers to physical birth. Um, you know, one, one step in, in birth is the you know, breaking of the water. Um, and so that, that reading would be that you know, someone needs to be born physically and then someone needs to be born spiritually. Um, I don't think that reading is problematic. I just don't think it's correct. Um, I, I, I do think that there's a better way of uh, looking at, at, at this and I'll uh, one of the problems with it, by the way, is that you never see birth in Greek referred to as being born of water or physical birth. So the, the, you, um, there, there isn't an example of that, of that language being used elsewhere. So it seems unlikely that that's what Jesus means here. <clears throat> so uh, if, if, if the answer is in our Old Testament, and I, I think it is, it's probably in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. So I'm going to go ahead and read that and just kind of listen to the language and see if you can kind of hear uh, being born of water and of the Spirit being a summary of what Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28 is talking about. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone uh, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, be careful to obey my rules. You <coughs> you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So there's two reasons that I really do think this is what Jesus is referring to. One of them is you can kind of hear water and, and spirit you know, in there. I think water and spirit is kind of a summary of what uh, this passage in Ezekiel is saying. The other is that this is one of the clearest Old Testament passages talking about the new birth. And Jesus is talking about the new birth. And so he's, he's telling Nicodemus that the new birth is right there in the Old Testament. And that he should be able to look at the Old Testament and understand the necessity of the, the new birth. Now, that, that said, it, it's easy to see why people would see a picture of baptism here. 
because you know, baptism points to the same reality as the cleansing and the, the new heart and the new spirit um, that, that Ezekiel is talking about. So you know, baptism is pointing to kind of the same thing that the, the new birth is. And so you, you can kind of see why people would come up with uh, baptism here. I just don't think that's what Jesus is referring to, mainly because Jesus expects Nicodemus to see what he's talking about in the Old Testament. So how should flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to, to spirit have, have helped Nicodemus? Nicodemus should have understood the Old Testament that he studied so long well enough to recognize that no efforts of dead flesh would produce spiritual life. Spiritual life can only come from God, not from self-effort. Self-effort is flesh. Um, Nicodemus' suggestion of re-entering his mother's womb would be as futile as it is impractical. A second fleshly birth would still result in flesh. Spiritual life can only come from a new birth by the Spirit. I think that's what, what Jesus is really trying to get at. So the next thing that, that Jesus uh, brings up is the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So think, think about the wind next. And you it's you're tempting to kind of think about it you know, from a, a 21st century perspective where we, we do have somewhat of a, an understanding of how the wind works. We can forecast that there's going to be high winds the next day but, you know, based on pressure fronts and you know, air flowing from high pressure to low pressure. Um, that understanding didn't exist in the first century. Jesus is using this analogy for first century years. Um, so to them, the, the wind would have been mysterious. They didn't really even have much of a concept of what gases that, that constitute the, the atmosphere were. But they had a word for wind. They understood it. They, they knew that it existed. Didn't really understand what it was, but they could see the effects. And, and that's the picture that Jesus wants to give of the Holy Spirit. Yes. So, well, water is one of the best things that we have to clean with. You know, even in the 21st century, in the first century, it certainly would be the best thing to clean with. So in Ezekiel, when God's talking about the new birth, one of the ways that he pictures what the new birth is, you know, I will sprinkle you with clean, with clean water and you will be clean. Um, that's not literal. You don't actually get wet when you're regenerated. But it's a picture of what God is doing. God is uh, you know, applying a cleansing agent to remove your sins from you. <clears throat> and you know, baptism is kind of picturing that same reality, and that, that's why it's really easy to see baptism there. And you're not really on the wrong track to see it. I just don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. You're welcome. <clears throat> so you know, kind of with, with wind, we, you know, in the fir first century especially, you, you don't see it. You don't understand what it is that's causing it. Um, how it is that your branches are swayed and your leaves rustle when the wind blows, but you do see the effects of, of wind. Um, you don't have a way to predict when it will show up, which way it will blow, what it will do, but you do see the effects of it, and that's what uh, Jesus is saying that the, the action of the Holy Spirit is like. So there's you know, invisible and there's visible effects of the, the wind. You know, the invisible effects would be God... Uh, you know, us being spiritually dead and then God causing us to become spiritually alive. Uh, that, that new birth 
you know, that effect of the, the Spirit's actions um, you know, helps us to rightly see Christ as a great and glorious Savior that's worth surrendering our, our life to. Um, you know, sins are forgiven in, in re- regeneration. So that would be kind of the invisible aspects of the Spirit's action. But Jesus is also saying that there's visible effects, you know, kind of a, a small part of that reality that we can actually see with our eyes, and that's a transformed life probably. You, you don't necessarily see regeneration, but you see someone live differently after they, they've in, encountered the new birth and experienced the new birth. And I think that would be the visible effect that uh, is what Jesus is referring to in this analogy. But you know, <coughs> excuse me. I did. I, I forgot to take Dayquil before this. <laughs> Um, this this cold has hung on for about more than two weeks now, I think. Yeah. But it, I think I'm on the, the tail end of it. <clears throat> so what, what's the point that Jesus is making with the wind? He's he's not introducing a new idea, and we're going to see that in just a second because Jesus is going to uh, kind of harshly criticize Nicodemus for not understanding the Old Testament. Um, Nicodemus is clearly having a hard time understanding how this new birth is outside of his control. Jesus is giving a picture from an everyday situation. We don't see how the wind works. We don't have a means of controlling it, but it produces very real effects. The work of the Spirit's not visible. It's not controllable by humankind, but it produces the same sorts of real effects. Um, it, it produces real effects that we can't see, the new birth, that kind of that sprinkling with water to cleanse us from uncleanness, removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, um, you know, causing us not to see Jesus as a threat to our autonomy, but to see Jesus as our only hope of meaning and significance and joy. <clears throat> so th- that's kind of what Jesus has tried to explain. Nicodemus' response is, how can these things be? Uh, <clears throat> and I think that is a very realistic response if we're on the right track with how we're understanding the, this. You know, Jesus... Um, has overturned Nicodemus's view of Scripture. You know, his entire worldview is wrong. He's not in control. God is. He's being confronted with that clear teaching from the Old Testament that he should know and is kind of realizing, I, I hope at this point, that he hasn't understood. Um, so next up, if you... Uh, well, actually, I, I don't have it highlighted, but are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Um, you know, this is a, a pretty harsh criticism of, of Nicodemus from, uh, from Jesus. Jesus is basically saying you've, you've spent your whole life studying the Old Testament. You've kind of risen to the top of Judaism, and you don't understand the basics of what the Old Testament is actually teaching. Uh, Don Carson has a really great paraphrase of this. Uh, are you the Regis Professor of Divinity and you don't know? <laughs> um, I've been teaching chemistry at the university level for 11 years, and I've never had anyone criticize my understanding of chemistry nearly this harshly, thankfully, <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, <clears throat> hopefully my understanding of chemistry is a little bit better than Nicodemus's understanding of the, the Old Testament at this point. <clears throat> One thing that's kind of worth thinking about uh, while, while we're here you know, how does Jesus' response tell us of the role of the Old Testament in, in, here? Um, Jesus expected you know, someone that had studied the Old Testament to the extent that Nicodemus had <clears throat> you know, to, 
to be able to understand uh, what he was saying from the Old Testament. For, for one, I think that tells us that we're really right in our reading of uh, water and, and spirit. But you know, if, if you listen to a lot of uh, you know, kind of contemporary you know, Chris, Christian teaching, you will hear maybe subtly, maybe overtly, you know, the idea that salvation was somehow different in the Old Testament than it, than it is in the, the New Testament. The Old Testament, but that, that's not true. Jesus is saying that um, salvation in the Old Testament is the same as the salvation that he's providing. Old Testament sa- saints were saved by grace through faith, just as the New Testament saints are. Old Testament faith was a forward-looking faith. They were expecting God to provide a means of salvation, so they didn't necessarily understand you know, how it is that God could justify sinners, uh, because we, we really can't understand that uh, with, without seeing the cross um, you know, kind of from a, a backwards perspective, but they, it was a faith in God to provide a means of salvation. Jesus expected you know, an Old Testament scholar to be able to see that in the Old Testament. Um, and I th- think that tells us that you know, a Reformed reading of the Old Testament that would be salvation is the same in the Old Testament as, in, as it is in the New Testament. Maybe you know, some differences in, in, in practice, but not differences in being saved by faith through, or by grace through faith would be the same. Yes, Ralph? Nicodemus did. Yes. Yeah, but when Paul explains it, he'll, he'll go back to the Old Testament. It's subtle in the Old Testament, which has always kind of confused me why it isn't as clear as it is in, in Paul's writings. But Paul will say, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then years later, he received circumcision. Um, and you know, so that, that would be one instance in the Old Testament where salvation by faith is really clearly taught. I think this Ezekiel passage is another one. Um, but but you, you are right that it, it's not as easy to see in the Old Testament scriptures. <clears throat> okay, so next up I want to look at verse 11. Um, that's uh, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Probably the, the first thing that stands out there is that Jesus has been speaking in the first person. He suddenly starts speaking you know, in the, um, the, the third person here. Or is it second person? Plural first person, thank you. Um, and there are all sorts of explanations for this. None of them are particularly convincing Except for, I, I, the, the, um, th- there is one that I think does kind of stand out. It, um, the, the, the other explanations really seem very improbable to me. This one, the more I think about it, the more I think it does kind of fit in with the way that uh, th- this is, has been going. So when Nicodemus first approaches Jesus, you know, he says, we know that you were a teacher come from God. He's kind of speaking in the plural first person. Thank you. Um, and there's some really interesting irony there. Nicodemus is kind of coming as this scholar and authority hoping to help Jesus out. 
when in fact Nicodemus doesn't understand the first thing about salvation. He needs to come to Jesus just as anyone else does to, to receive salvation as a free gift. Um, so, so Nicodemus is kind of coming as this expert. He's actually you know, every bit as ignorant as anyone else that, that could possibly come. And as you read John, John loves to kind of point out irony like this. Um, and that's why I think that what Jesus is doing is he's kind of imitating the way that Nicodemus spoke. It's, Nick, Jesus is being a little bit sarcastic here. Um, so, uh, but the, the irony is that Jesus is actually speaking with knowledge and authority, whereas Nicodemus thought that he was speaking with knowledge and authority. If you find that a little bit um, difficult to, to buy as an explanation, I can assure you that the others are, seem less probable to me. Um, but anyway, that's kind of my best attempt to explain why Jesus kind of shifts to the, um, the, the plural here. <coughs> So the next thing that kind of stands out, you know, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Um, there, there, there's also a little bit of you know, kind of difficulty in understanding what, what Jesus means here. I, I, I think I've got a good answer for this one. Um, <clears throat> what, is, what does Jesus mean that Nicodemus doesn't grasp earthly things? Because the new, new birth certainly seems like a heavenly idea. And I, 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 that, that, that's true, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. What Nicodemus has really failed to understand is human inability. And human inability you know, is an earthly thing. Nicodemus knows the testimony of the law and the prophets well. You know, he's one of the world's greatest experts on that subject. He should be able to speak authoritatively, but in fact, he's failed to understand the necessity of birth from above at all, or, or, or spiritual rebirth. Despite his extensive knowledge, he's constructed a form of works righteousness from the Old Testament rather than seeing a bestowal of righteousness as a free gift from God as the, the means of salvation. He doesn't comprehend the inadequacy of earthly things, human works and religious efforts to make us right with God. Human inability is an earthly thing. It should be plain to anyone that our efforts are completely insufficient to please a holy and righteous God that we should so stubbornly resist this truth speaks not of the difficulty of seeing it, but of our innate pride and our spiritual blindness. Human inability should be as plain as day. We should automatically recognize that we all sin against God. And we know from our own systems of justice that no number of good works, no length of perfect obedience to the law, can excuse us from even one infraction. We should be desperately looking to God for a remedy. Instead, the religious leaders of that day had deluded themselves into thinking they could somehow set up a system that would allow them to measure up and earn God's favor in their efforts. So human ability is all around us, or human inability is, is all around us. It should be self-evident. And I think that's why Jesus is uh, criticizing Nicodemus that he's unable to accept earthly things. If he can't understand human inability, how's he gonna be able to understand heavenly things? Um, and that, that's what Jesus is going to proceed to explain in, in the next verses. How is Nicodemus going to be able to accept the incarnation? Or Jesus' unique status as being fully God and fully man. God's provision of righteousness bestowed as a free gift through faith in Christ. How is he going to understand the atonement? Th those are heavenly things, and he can't get the earthly things yet. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. <clears throat> 
if you're getting tired of verses that are difficult to understand, bear with me. Uh, this is another one that, uh, this is probably the, the hardest verse in, the, in, the, in this section to get. Um, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There's two broad interpretations. Both of them work. Um, I, I prefer the second one, but uh, I, I don't think you'd cause yourself any problems if you, you see this the first way. <clears throat> one possible interpretation is that the knowledge of heavenly things can only come from heaven. Jesus is the only source of reliable knowledge from heaven because he's the only one that's been there. And if we look elsewhere in John, we'll see this stated very clearly. So that, that this interpretation is definitely correct. The question is whether it's what Jesus means here. And I would lean towards no, but I, I certainly could be wrong on that. And you'd find really good scholars that would, uh, would answer it that way. You'd find good scholars that answer it the way that I prefer. <clears throat> I, I, I think that Jesus is still kind of talking about human inability here. Is Nicodemus aware of anyone that's ascended to heaven on their own merits? Presumably not. Um, meriting the right to ascend to heaven requires more than a human can produce. But the exception to that is Jesus, the Son of Man who's descended from heaven, um, who actually can produce that sort of merit. So if, if there's going to be a bridge between heaven and earth, it's not going to come from the, the earth side. Uh, an earthly person isn't going to find a way of building that bridge and ascending into heaven. Um, if that, that bridge is to exist, only through a descent from someone from heaven, Jesus, the Son of Man, that such a bridge will be possible. And I, I think that's probably what Jesus is after. And I would go back to the end of chapter 1. So this is where Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is impressed that Jesus had some sort of supernatural knowledge of what he was praying, presumably under a fig tree. And G Jesus says, um, if you find this impressive, you're going to see something even more impressive. He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending not on Jacob's ladder, which is how you'd expect Je uh, Jesus to finish that, but on him. Jesus is that ladder between earth and heaven. So this idea has been introduced in John, and I think that's what Jesus is saying right here. But again, I, I could be wrong because the other explanation works also. So continuing on to verse 14. Verse 14 is finally going to be a little bit easier to follow. As Moses, was lifted, or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm not going to read it in the interests of time, but if you remember you know, the, um, you know, the, kind of the Exodus narrative, in, in Numbers 21 we, we come to an incident where, again, the, the people of God are grumbling against God. They don't like this worthless, tasteless manna that he's sending. They're not happy with their situation. They're not happy, happy with God's provisions. And so wickedly, they grumble against God. Hasn't worked very well before for them. It's not going to work well this time. Uh, God sends fiery serpents. The fiery serpents, by the way, most tend to think that the bite burns. That's probably what's meant by fiery serpents. Might simply be that the serpents were red. Uh, not too important. <clears throat> and... God provides a very interesting remedy. This one, you know, in, until I started to understand the Gospels, it had me kind of scratching my head. Um, Moses makes a bronze snake, which 
you, you wouldn't expect God to ask him to do because of the uh, prohibitions against images and looking to uh, you know, an image of something in, in the Old Testament. And in fact, it became a, a problem. Hezekiah had to destroy the bronze snake later on in Israel's history. But anyway, Moses makes this bronze snake, lifts it up on a pole, and anyone who simply looks at that snake is cured of their mortal wound of the snake bite. So the idea is that you simply look to the provision that God has provided, and God provides healing. <clears throat> you know, the, the remedy was not to grumble less or uh, to, to do something to get rid of snakes. It wasn't to look at the burning wound and to try to suck venom out of the, the snake wound. It was simply to look away from yourself to God's appointed remedy. And you know, as here what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to himself as the reality of that Old Testament type. Um, you know, the, the snake raised on the pole is a type of Jesus. Um, Jesus, <clears throat> you know, and this is another way of saying that salvation is not by self-work. It's not by, by looking to yourself. It's by um, looking to God. You know, Jesus' miracles might be eye-catching, but accepting you know, his externally visible miracles is not adequate to, to save. And that, that's the problem that this crowd had. Jesus' main point is that the self-righteous Nicodemus needs to hear that salvation is from abandoning all efforts at self-salvation and simply looking to Jesus. Jesus provides everything. Nicodemus provides nothing. So to, to kind of summarize things, I'm going to take us back to the beginning. The, um, the problem that Jesus could see with the crowds in Jerusalem that were believing in his name is that their faith was in miraculous signs, but it wasn't really in the, the reality that those signs pointed to. Jesus was um, something less to them than their only hope to see the kingdom of God. And it doesn't really matter exactly what he was less. Maybe he was a political messiah that would throw out the Romans. Maybe he was someone who could work miracles and kind of make their, their, their lives a little bit better or heal someone that was important to them. But he he wasn't someone they needed to look to as their only hope of salvation. Nicodemus is kind of the representative, representative of that crowd that, that comes to Jesus but doesn't really understand who he is. Um, and the, the sign that they're missing is the inner transformation of the Holy Spirit. So let me uh, conclude with you know, another miracle of, of Jesus. This is my, my favorite miracle, not so much because the miracle is um, more impressive than, than Jesus' other miracles, but just uh, the way that it comes about. So this is a, it's recorded in several of the Synoptic Gospels, but it, I'll, I'll read it out of Mark. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as Jesus was preaching the word to them, they came, uh, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the, the roof above him. And when he had made an opening, he let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and uh, went out before them all. 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Um, the, the reason I love this miracle is you know, Jesus is teaching in this room, and suddenly plaster and you know, straw you know, from this roof kind of starts falling down, and this man is lowered right in front of Jesus. Everyone is paying attention. And Jesus um, is the only one that actually sees this man's problem. Everyone in the crowd thinks, oh, the guy's problem is that he's paralyzed. And that's not his problem. His problem is that he's a sinner that's in need of forgiveness. And Jesus is really the only one that sees that. And he heals the, the man's major problem, his sin. And people don't recognize what just happened. They don't recognize the new birth. Um, and Jesus shows that he has the authority to forgive sins and to bring about the new birth by healing this person's secondary problem, their, their inability to walk. That, um, I think that's kind of a good summary of uh, you know, the difference between seeing signs and the difference between seeing the new birth. Uh, we've got time for maybe one question before they pull out that cane and drag me off the stage. Ralph. Uh, lots of controversy about that. I'm in a little bit of a minority, but I would say that the earthly things are human inability. Um, human inability, it, 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 it's not clear. And the reason it's confusing is that you know, the main thing that he's talking about is the new birth, but he's talking about it from the perspective of human inability. And I think that's what Jesus means by earthly things. Uh, I, I could be wrong on that because I... I'm going against some really good commentators when I say that. Uh, yes, I, I definitely do think that this is a longer conversation that took place and that you know, John is summarizing probably several hours of condensation and kind of giving us you know, bullet points of it, yes. Because Nicodemus only says three things here. Uh, okay, the cane's coming, so I've got to get out of, out of here. But thank you.